Good morning. Thank you so much, Les, and thank you all. Um, we really appreciate that. I think I can say on behalf of our team that we appreciate that. Would you pray with me? God, thank you so much for, um, for who you are and, and meeting us where we are. Your love is great, and God, I pray that we would just be, um, we would recognize our need for you moment by moment, that we would lean, um, lean into what you are doing and lean into your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, so as you may know, um, we're looking at a series on um, the book of Jonah. Uh, last Sunday, Pastor Bob introduced us to this peculiar prophet um, who had received a special call from God to be his mouthpiece to Nineveh. Um, there were other prophets in the Old Testament that mentioned Nineveh, but Jonah received this special call. It's, this was Jonah's task given by God. However, as Bob explained last week, um, it's recorded that Jonah didn't really have many words for God. In fact, he didn't really say anything. He just got up and left. Um, he simply went in the opposite direction to Tarshish. And Jonah still doesn't say much to God, even while he's fleeing on the ship. But he does begin to take some ownership of his disobedience. Um, when a storm is growing more violent at sea, Jonah tells the sailors to throw him overboard, that it's his fault. He's, he's taking ownership. So in verse 15 of this chapter, of the first chapter um, that we looked at last week, they throw him overboard and the sea grows calm. And I think one of the best things in this first chapter is in the next verse, um, 16, which says at this, meaning the change, the calm in the storm, um, the men, the sailors, greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. So God receives the glory in spite of Jonah's weakness, in spite of his disobedience. And this is where we're going to pick up um, our story today, in chapter 2. Jonah has been swallowed by the great fish, and um, so this is where we pick up. Jonah chapter 2. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, In my distress I called to the Lord. He answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled around me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me, the deep surrounded me, seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down, to the earth beneath, the earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayers rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. 
So in the beginning of this chapter, um, at first when, when reading verses um, 2 through 6, they seem pretty melodramatic. This is kind of my, my take on it. Um, they're really desperate sounding and, and almost sound like Jonah is just exaggerating a little bit can, if, we're, if we're thinking of this um, as just a story. He's kind of making things seem a little bit worse than they are, maybe. I mean, we kind of know, we all have some people in our lives that maybe might be a little bit dramatic or exaggerate a little bit. Husbands, don't look at your wives right now. They're not dramatic. You just nod your head. <laughs> um, so we all know some people like that. But in fact, um, this section is, is so descriptive. Last week during Children's Church, we had them Um, I had them act out this. It's just very descriptive and dramatic, so they were able to pretend the seaweed was wrapped around their head. Um, It's very dramatic, and it would be melodramatic if, in fact, it was just fictional, but it's not. We have to remember that that like the Apostle Paul, who was in prison, Jonah was was trapped. He um, He thought it was the end. This was a rock-bottom situation for him. And his prayer reflects this. Many phrases um, he uses must have been a, a memorized combination of, of several other prayers. Um, they're, they're portions of other prayers in the Bible. And they were memorized because um, even if he had his biblical texts with him when he jumped overboard, which he probably didn't, he wouldn't have been able to see them to read them. So these were things that were embedded in him. Um, And most of them were from the Psalms. For example, verse 2 is found in Psalm 18.6. Verse 3 is um, found in Psalm 88.6 and 42.7. These are just examples that he did have a knowledge. Um, He did have um, a relationship. Verse 5 is in Lamentations 3.5.4. And Psalm 69, 2. And when Jonah is feeling the weight of the waters, um, feeling utterly abandoned, he says this from Psalm 31, 22, which is verse 4 in, this, in our passage. I'm cut off from before your eyes. Nevertheless, you heard the voice of my supplications when I cried to you. So these prayers come out of a reality that not only echoed others' prayers, um, in the past, but it was also a foreshadowing of what was to come. Um, Jesus references Jonah as a sign of his own death and resurrection uh, when some Pharisees and teachers demanded a sign from him. Um, this is in Matthew 12. Um, Jesus answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign. But none will be given it except the sign of, a, of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So even Jesus gives credibility to Jonah's story. As we keep reading, um, we come across verse 6, which is, is really a pivotal point in this chapter. In the middle of the verse... Um, Jonah has, before this, Jonah has really been just expressing this downward spiral, kind of sinking to the depths. And, um, but here, in the middle of verse 6, his attitude seems to change. It seems to look up. Verse 6 says, To the roots of the mountains I sank down, the earth beneath 
barred me in forever. And then, here's this, this glimmer of hope, but you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. What a redemptive declaration. Jonah is recognizing God's steadfast love and mercy and sensing hope for his future that God is not done with him yet. To me, this is um, a great reminder that our God is a God of second chances. I mean, really, this is a worst-case scenario for Jonah. Um, So we as humans can surely understand his desperate cries for help. We don't fault him for crying out, um, even if he hadn't been in conversation with God much before. And we understand this because isn't this us sometimes um, waiting till we just can't do anything else? We can't figure it out on our own or waiting till we feel so defeated that we turn to our last resort as prayer. Isn't this us sometimes? I think too often we are in the mindset of just praying defensively, um, and we tend to forget that we have an offensive, proactive, and potent catalyst in prayer. And prayer not only changes us, but by the power of the Spirit has the capacity to change things and circumstances. And this is good news It is good news that our God is a God of second chances that works through our prayers. David Mathis agrees and writes, God intends to bring life out of death. We may well think of this as the principle behind all evangelism. Indeed, we may even call it the Jonah principle, as Jesus seems to have done. It is when we come to share spiritually and on occasions physically in Christ's death that his power is demonstrated in our weakness, and others are drawn to him. This is exactly what was happening to Jonah. Uh, Mathis also shares another example of a man who was trying to talk to his neighbors about his faith, and it, wasn't, it just wasn't clicking. It wasn't seeming very effective. Um, but like we talked about in the Art of Neighboring series, when he begins to, to share his life more deeply and, and hear, learn of, of the others' lives, um, are when some, some strides happen. Um, and it's actually when some major difficulties and troubles come into this man's life that he's able to, um, to see a change in his relationships with his neighbor. He shared how Christ was helping him face those troubles. This is the Jonah principle. Mathis says, as we experience weakness, as we are brought low, Christ's power is more evident in us. This evidence of Christ in us is precipitated or catalyzed by our prayers. In verse 7, Jonah prays, When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord. And my prayer rose to you, to your temple. This reminds me of one of my favorite illustrations of prayer in the Bible um, found in Revelation. In Revelation 8, and it says, The smoke of the incense together with the prayer of God's people, went up before God from the angel's hand. I'm going to read that again. The smoke of the incense together with the prayers of God's people went up before God from the angel's hand. If I'm ever questioning if God is hearing my prayers or holding my prayers, try to remember um, this verse, that they're coming from the angel's hands. And they are pleasing to God, that incense. 
Continuing um, to follow along Jonah's journey in prayer, we come to his conclusion in verse 9, and we can see the transformation, where at first he's really trying to just save himself by fleeing um, to Tarshish. He now says, But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say my salvation comes from the Lord alone. And Jonah doesn't necessarily repent um, with a confession or, or apology like we would be used to for his disobedience. But by the end of the prayer, he does have a repented spirit. We can tell this by his, his turn of attitude. Jonah recognized he could not save himself. He declared, my salvation comes from the Lord alone. David Guzik also notices, like most of us, a turning of our hearts and repentance in Jonah seems to happen over time. Um, And we can see these slight changes, for example, um, when Jonah allowed himself to be cast into the sea. That took some kind of change in his heart to, to own up to his choice to run away. He was saying, this is my fault. Um, also a change when Jonah called out to God. This prayer is a change of heart. And then finally, um, his, his commitment to his vow. I will make good on my vow and, and sacrifice. But we might actually ask, so, well, did Jonah repent? When did he? And, and Guzik would suggest that the answer is found in seeing repentance more as um, an ongoing event, more than a one-time event. Though it begins at one time, it must continue and mature. I would say the same is, is for prayer. It is an event, but it is also a process. Similarly, uh, Walter Mueller says this about prayer. Prayer is not merely an occasional impulse to which we respond when we are in trouble. Prayer is a life attitude. This, this happens naturally, yes. Like, like we said, when, when we are in those tough times, those gut-wrenching times of pain and distress and despair, we cry out to God, we do, and he hears our prayers and he holds us and he comforts us. But really, prayer is, is a process, an attitude. Um, we find this attitude represented in 1 Thessalonians 5, um, 16 through 18, which are some of the shortest, most direct um, verses on prayer. To rejoice always, pray continually, and give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So how do we pray continually? What does it mean to pray unceasingly? How can we form rhythms of prayer in our lives? To avoid a defensive or self-centered prayer life, only going to God when we're in need or, or really desperate. How can we form rhythms of prayer in our lives? One example is to use the model for which Jesus taught us to pray. We use the Lord's Prayer together in our gathering as a recentering, And this prayer starts from the beginning to fix our eyes on God's character instead of our needs or desires. And it's going to look a little bit differently for, um, for everyone, for everyone in a different season of life. I know that 
for me, before kids, I was able to have more time, um, an hour or a half hour, to really just sit down and journal and, um, and, and write out my prayers. Now, a lot of the time, my, my praying is happening on the road, just driving from one place to the next. It's where I find some um, solace, just talking to God about my day. Um, and it's not necessarily a deep um, a deep prayer, but it's, it's like talking to a friend, um, talking to him, thanking him, asking for guidance. I love this quote um, by, by C.S. Lewis that expresses our moment-by-moment need for God and to be in constant, constant communication with him. He says, I pray because I can't help myself. I pray because I'm helpless. I pray because the need flows out of me all the time, waking and sleeping. It does not change God, it changes me. So what have we learned from Jonah? We've seen that God is persistent and gives second chances. And his strength is made perfect in our weakness. We can also learn from Jonah's mistakes. Instead of ignoring God and blocking him out, we learn that forming rhythms and patterns of prayer allows for that communion and two-way communication with the Most Holy. Um, I'll invite the, the worship team to come as we close. And let's also just remember the power and the potency that we have in prayer. I would challenge us to pray offensively on the front lines without ceasing to bring glory to God and his kingdom because prayer aligns our hearts and minds with God's will. Prayer aligns our hearts and minds with God's will. And I leave you to ponder this question throughout your week as it comes to mind. How are you, how am I making space for and forming rhythms of prayer in our daily lives. As we're at work, um, as our kids go to school, how can we be encouraging them to um, just talk to God?